So um, we're in this kind of uh, parenthetic section of the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, where um, Paul kind of breaks theme uh, from talking to Gentiles about Gentile salvation, and he's answering questions about the Jews, about the covenant people of God from the Old Testament, um, their purpose, and uh, God's future plan for them. And so, you know, uh, he answers these, these very practical questions. Chapter 9, um, why is Israel now on the back burner? Why is it all the church, Gentiles, when for 4,000 years it was all Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David? You know, why, what happened? And he answered that in 9. Um, he talks about the, the stumbling block, Gentile salvation in chapter 10, why, why Israel is on the back burner and why the church is in the front, the stumbling block and what all that means. But as we crossed into chapter 11, our last time together, uh, Paul started talking to us about God's future plan for Israel. And, and in a sense, what's going on here in this whole segment, this whole three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, is that the Apostle Paul is making two points at once. Uh, the, the first one is concerning Israel, and he's always giving us that instruction as he's answering those questions about Israel that we've been discussing, and that's part of it. He wants us to know that, and so that's one of the points that he's making. But the other point that the Apostle Paul is making in this, um, in, the, in the bigger picture of the whole context of the book of Romans, is really what makes God tick? Why does God do what God does? You know, what are the ways of God? You know, as we read the Bible so often, we see what he does. But why? What motivates God to do what he does? And I think that's Paul's greater desire in getting into all of this in these three chapters, is that he wants us to understand something about the way that God works, that he's calculated, he's intentional, he's, uh, um, he puts thought into it, he's got a strategy, and he has an end game. Nothing is by accident. And so even the confusing things uh, have reason with God. He, he had finished chapter 8 by, by saying that nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? And that was his point, like nothing can separate you from the love of God. And when I, if I were to say that to you, I mean, and you're going through, let's say, like you're going through some intense trial. Uh, we go through intense trials. None of us escape that. And I say nothing can separate you from his love. And you, you could look at me and you say, this is love? <laughs> you know, this thing that, that, that I've gone through or this past that I've had, or maybe not even you, but you're looking at someone else's life and you say, well, I know that person loves God and you're going to tell me that's God's love, the, the thing that's going on in their life. Starving children is God's love. The Holocaust is God's love. You know, and, 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 and so many things make our check engine light go on, you know, and then you just say, well, God just loves you. And nothing can separate you from his love. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. I need a little help reconciling, you know, what I see and, and what I hear on things. Is this what love is? And, and so if this is what love is, then how do you make sense of all these other things that go on? And so Paul's greater point in talking about Israel here is that God has ways and means and reasons of doing things that we don't understand but yet they don't violate the fact of the truth of his love and what he is and who he is. And so as Paul answers these questions, what he's doing is he's giving reason 
to the why of what God is doing with Israel and showing that his love is not contradicted by the fact that they are cast off in this time. And so he answers these questions as he goes. And so as we're in the back half of chapter 11, now we're going to pick up in verse 13. Paul is explaining God's plan for the Jews, and he's also explaining God's process and why he's doing things the way that he's doing. And so um, just for your mind or for your notes, chapter 11 has five points and a conclusion. There's five points that Paul makes, and he brings it to one conclusion at the end of the chapter. Um, The first two points we looked at last time. The first point is that God has not cast off Israel. He's not done with the Jews. He has a future plan for them. It's, it's proof, uh, proven by the fact that he's saving Jews. Paul was a Jew. It's proven by he declared it in the Old Testament. Uh, we've talked about that, Jeremiah. Uh, it's proven by the fact that there's a remnant that believes according to grace, and there's always been a remnant. And it's proven by the fact that David even prophesied in the Psalms that that Israel would not receive the Messiah and that they would go into a season of blindness, uh, the season that we've been in right now. And so God is not done with Israel. That's point number one. Point number two is that he gives us the reason why God put Israel on the back burner. He told us in verses 7 through 12, again, we talked it last time, is that the reason why God has put the Jews aside is so that he can save the rest of the world. <laughs> you know, Gentile salvation. Um, he says in verse 11, I say, have they stumbled that they should fall completely? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. And so part of God's reasoning in setting the Jews aside is so that the rest of the world could be reached. He didn't want any to perish, but he wants all to come to uh, repentance. And then in verse 13, where we pick up, we come to the third point that Paul's making in chapter 11, and that is a warning. There's a warning here. This third point is a warning that's given to us uh, that we're not to exalt ourselves against the Jews or to be lifted up in pride because we're saved. Um, it's It's a very important warning, and notice it in verse 13. Paul says, "'For I speak to you Gentiles.'" That's, that's you and I. That's the audience. Inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office. Now, that was Paul's particular calling. God had made him the apostle to the Gentiles. He told him that. Paul wanted to go to the Jews. God said, I ain't got that for you. That's Peter. <laughs> you know, he said, I'm calling you to the Gentiles. But God, that doesn't make sense. I don't understand the Gentiles. I don't like the Gentiles. You know, God's ways are not our ways, right? Sometimes he, he calls us where we wouldn't think we would fit. But Paul says, this is my ministry, and so I magnify my office. He says, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy them which are my flesh, that is the Jews, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them, the putting off of the Jews, be the reconciling of the world, the Gentiles, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? You know, if, if good came out of God sending them aside, then how much good is going to come from when, the time when God pulls them back towards him again? And he will pull them back towards him again. 
For if the first fruit be holy, and the first fruit would be Israel, they were the ones that were originally reached by God, then the lump also is holy. Those that are touched by them, that would be the Gentiles. So he's using this illustration of bread here. And he says that if the root be holy, second illustration is of a tree, then he says so are the branches. And so in this whole thing of salvation, the Jews are the roots. It was through them that God gave the scriptures. It was through them. God called Abraham and the prophets came and then Christ came into the world. Israel is the root of this tree called salvation. And by implication, he's saying that the Gentiles, that we are the branches. We came secondarily on things. But then he says in verse 17 that if some of the branches be broken off. Now he's speaking of Israel nationally there. The fact that they're cast aside. The fact that they're on the back burner. If some of the branches be broken off and you, that is the Gentiles, being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them partake of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, then boast not against the branches. But if you boast, understand this, if you're boasting because, hey, we're saved, we're the Gentiles, and you Jews are, you're Christ's killers, God's done with you, you boasting. He says, remember this, that you bear not the root, but the root bears you. In other words, listen, God has this great tree that he's planted. And some of those original branches, Israel, have been broken off. They didn't believe. They stumbled at the stumbling stone. And in their place, you and I have been invited by Jesus Christ, grace through faith, to be grafted into this tree. Meaning that we grew up on a totally different tree that had nothing to do with God. And God, in his mercy, cut us off of the wild tree that was condemned, and he took us as branches, and he grafted us in. He literally tied the branches like a master botanist, and he made us part of this tree of salvation, even though we had no birthright to it. We weren't. God grafted us into something. And he says, be careful, you that were adopted, grafted in, don't boast against the branches. You're, you're being held up by the roots of this tree. Don't exalt against it. Anti-Semitism is one of the most satanic expressions that exists in the world. God, I'm sorry, Satan has hated the Jews from the very beginning because it would be through them that, their, that his demise, the, the Savior, would be uh, brought into the world. And for us to take any kind of an anti-Semitic position is, is in a sense to hate our own parents. Because it's because of the Jews that we are what we are. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have Christ. We wouldn't have the scripture. He says, you will say then the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, Paul answers that argument. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches... That is, if the the original part of the tree was cut off, then take heed lest he also spare not thee. Beware of being prideful of your salvation. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, those Jews that were cut off, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also shall be cut off. That's a very sobering verse, isn't it? 
He's saying that the reason that we're grafted into this tree is because we've embraced God by faith. But if we were to leave off that faith and, and become prideful and think that it's something of us, then we ought to take heed if we don't continue in faith. Now, I don't think he's talking to individuals here. Some people look at this and say, well, see, there, there, there you go. You can lose your salvation. He, Paul is saying here that you can be cut off again from the tree. Paul is talking to groups of people here. Remember, he says, I talk to you Gentiles. And he's talking of Israel, speaking in very generic terms. Not saying that the individual, but hey, you Gentiles, you can be cut off just as the Jews were cut off. We're going to talk about what that means in just a minute. And he says, and they also, collectively, Israel, if they abide not still in unbelief, they shall be grafted in again, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which are the natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree? And so God, or, or Paul is basically saying to us here, is he's saying, listen, this is the deal. Abraham grew up into this great tree called Israel. And the branches were cut off because of unbelief. And you and I, the Gentiles, were grafted in and we're a part of this thing called God's salvation. And he's saying, but be careful because if God didn't spare the natural branches, if you think because you're something special or that, you know, that you're not dependent on God, you could be cut off. And if they believe again, God can graft them back in. So he's saying, listen, God has a future plan for Israel. He hasn't cast them off, and he can graft them back in again. Salvation, in, in, in a lot of ways, um, when you're talking about people groups, is a lot like a fire. When you light a fire, right, that, that fire will burn and it will consume everything that's flammable, combustible, and then once everything that's combustible is extinguished or, or used up the fuel, then the fire goes out. Because without something to burn, there, there is no place of fire. Now, how many times does God liken himself unto fire in the Bible? Um, Jesus said that when the Spirit comes, it says that he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. You know, And we talk about the fire of Pentecost. And so God like, likens himself to this fire often. And the thing about fire is that fire will move into a place and then it will leave behind it, you know, the deadness, and it will move on to somewhere else. And so when we look at salvation from the very beginning, from let's say from the, from the time of Pentecost when the church first began in Acts chapter 2, there was a fire that was started there, right? 3,000 people were saved. Then 5,000 a couple weeks later. It says the Lord added daily to the church such as should be saved. And there was this amazing fire that started there in, in the, the early days of the church. But then a persecution arose. And some corruption infiltrated into the church, Ananias and Sapphira. And there was various things that happened. And it says that when the persecution came, it says that the disciples were scattered abroad and they went into all the various regions that were round about Israel and they began to start new fires. And in a sense, what happened is that God touched Jerusalem and he burned his fire there and he saved who would be saved and then the fire started to go out, and it began to spread out. A couple of weeks ago, um, 
we we uh, did some yard work when the weather was nice that one weekend, and um, our plans got a little confused, and um, I got called to a neighbor's house to do something, and I said to my son, Rocky, I said, Rocky, do me a favor. I said, start a fire in the backyard and burn all the um, – burn. I know, I just saw horrible parenting, you know, but he's a pretty responsible young man, <laughs> you know, and I said uh, – and I said, start a fire and, um, and I'll be back. You know, I said, just burn all the branches. We cut down a big tree. I said, just burn all the branches, you know, and I'll be back, you know. So it took me a little longer than I expected. I was over at the neighbor's and um, I was there for probably a couple hours. And then as I was leaving, um, he, he started talking to me and we were having this conversation. And so I'm there and I'm kind of delayed in this conversation. And all of a sudden, uh, Rocky comes running down the dirt path. I mean, and, and it's not right next door. You know, it's probably a quarter mile away. And he's running. I mean, he is sprinting down the path. And as soon as I saw him, I was, I, I'm thinking, because Georgia wasn't home, you know, so. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah, if she's home, I'm going to tell him to start a fire, please, you know. So he's running. I'm thinking, oh, no, one of the little boys, because they, you know, they were there. I think someone got hurt. Something happened. I'm like, what is this? And he, I go, what is it, son? And he's running. He goes, Dad. The fire's out of control. I can't stop it. <laughs> so I have the, the four-wheeler, and I had, I had filled up the trailer with a bunch of fence posts, you know, and uh, they were long. They were kind of like 16 feet, like hanging way off the back of the trailer. And I go, hop in. So he hops on the back of the four-wheeler, and I take off up this dirt path out of the neighbor's place, and I hit a bump. And, and, and the trees, the, the fence posts kind of started to tip out of, the, out of the thing. And I go, Rocky, dive on it. So, he, so he's in the back. He jumps off the back of the quad into the back of the trailer. And he, and he kind of lands on these tree limbs. And, you know, they set right. And I'm like, hang on. And we just kind of book it, you know. And I get home. And sure enough, the fire had spread out from the original fire pit. And the, the ground brush had just taken off. And it was just like in this half circle, wherever the wind was blowing, uh, going away from the fire pit. And it was just underneath like this massive mound of wild rose, you know, the thorny stuff, uh, you know, and, and I'm like, oh, goodness, you know. So I'm like, get water, you know, and he's got a bucket. And I go in and I just could care less about life or limb. I'm just jumping on it, jumping on this fire, you know, like stopping it out. And, and I would say that two, three, four minutes later, it would have been a big problem, you know, real bad. What it was about to, and, and thankfully, uh, we were able to, to put it out and the whole thing, you know, and it was an adventure. It was wild, you know, this whole thing. And it, you know, just one of those times when, like God spared me from being in the newspaper, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, it's ha- it happens too often, actually, you know, <laughs> but um, but fire, right? It, it's amazing that when you go into the backyard now, what you see is you see how far the fire went, and you can still tell where it touched and and where it stopped. Why? Because everything on the one side is gray and barren. And everything on the other side is green and uh, flammable. Well, not maybe not green, but still has uh, <laughs> life in it, you know, sort of a thing. And, and, and salvation is very similar to that. God begins in an area, and he'll do something, he'll exhaust it, and then he'll move on. 
You know, so we see that happen in Jerusalem. We've seen that th- through uh, what happened in Europe as Christianity spread out. You know, the churches of Paul, you go to those areas that were once thriving, and now you say, well, where is God? There's, you know, the ashes of church buildings remain and monuments and memorials and history, but there's no more salvation. You don't see it anymore. You go to Europe today, and Europe is so dark, you know, and it's almost so post-Christian over there that even to bring up the things of God, they're like, yeah, 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 that's, we've been there, done that. We already know we're, we're not interested in that anymore, you know. And then, you know, we see in America, we see that we're, we're in that place where the fire is fading, you know, and God is still moving and there's still salvation that's happening, but not like it was, you know. And essentially what's going to happen is that the fire is going to go back to where it began. That's what God promises, is that when he's finished with the Gentiles, he's going to turn his attention back again to the Jews, you know, and that we ought to be fearful that we are not cut off. Now, how is that going to happen? He answers the question in verse 25, and this is the fourth point that Paul makes in this chapter. The warning is don't be high-minded. Don't think that you're privileged. Don't think that you can't be cut off. The fourth point, he says, verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. And here's the mystery. That blindness, in part, not total blindness, but partial blindness, has happened to Israel until, meaning that blindness is not permanent. It's not forever. It's until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. In other words, when God's fire is done consuming amongst the Gentiles, God is going to turn his attention again back to national Israel and their eyes will be opened. They will no longer be spiritually blind. Whereas today, they will not recognize Christ. They cannot recognize Christ. I mean, sometimes it's almost supernatural that they can't recognize Christ. You know, when you show them certain things, uh, even in their own scriptures concerning Jesus Christ, and they can't see it, they're totally blinded. But Paul says that that blindness is not permanent. It will be there until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, meaning that God has a schedule. God has a calendar, and at some point, it's going to be uh, completed. In Daniel chapter 9, there is a remarkable prophecy that's given. It's probably one of the most remarkable prophecies in the entire Bible because of how specific it is. Daniel, written sometime in the 700s BC, so you're talking 700 years before Christ came. And Daniel was asking God, he was simply praying, and he said, God, show me what's going to happen. What's the future of our people? And God actually sends the angel Gabriel to give Daniel specific words, specific prophecy concerning what's to come. And and God says this to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. He says, know this. He says that from the going forth of the commandment, to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until the day that the Messiah comes will be, and you can translate it out, he says 173,880 days. That's why it's such a remarkable prophecy because it's given to the very day. You know, from, from this event until this event is going to be this many days and then this is going to happen. And then he says what it is. He says that Messiah is going to come. 
And then the prophecy goes on to say that after that, once the, once the Messiah comes, it says that he will be cut off. That's what it says, speaking of the death of the Messiah, that the Messiah will be crucified. And then the prophecy goes on to say that after the Messiah is cut off, the people of the prince that shall come, and the prince that shall come is a reference to the Antichrist that will come at the end of times. It says that the people of the prince that shall come, that's the Romans, will destroy the city and the sanctuary, Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed, and until the end, desolations are determined. And then the prophecy goes on, and it says that he, that is the prince, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with the people for seven years. For one week, it says in the, in the, in the prophecy, it's a heptad, it's a week of years. 1260 days to be exact. And so this prophecy of Daniel is given, and basically it's broken into two chunks. The entire prophecy covers 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven, but he breaks it up into two halves, 69 sevens, the 173,880 days, and then the final seven, the last seven years, and there's this mysterious gap between the first 69 and the last one. The temple will be destroyed. Jerusalem will be desolate. The Messiah will be cut off. And then after that, there's this period of seven that still yet remains. What gives? What's the story with all that? Luke 19 gives the answer. In Luke 19, turn to it. Keep your finger in Romans 11 and turn to Luke 19. Luke 19 is the day that Daniel was speaking of when he said that there will be 173,880 days from the going forth of the command until the Messiah comes. Uh, it's going to be verse 40, verse uh, 41. It, it's Palm Sunday, A.D. 32. And, you know, someone went through, and uh, this guy, Sir Robert Anderson, he was uh, over Scotland Yard back. He, he was so intrigued by this prophecy that he took it to, to uh, history and to calendar, and he, and he proved it out from the going forth of the command, March 14th, 445 B.C., and he calculated the dates, and it brought you to April 6, 32 A.D. And that was Palm Sunday, the events that took place in Luke chapter 19. And that's the very day that Jesus was triumphantly entering into the city of Jerusalem and the people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. The prophecy of Daniel was fulfilled to the day when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. That's why when the Pharisees said, and, and I'm assuming there's a little background here, I don't have time to read every verse of it, but remember the Pharisees said, Master, tell your disciples to stop saying that. That's blasphemy. And Jesus declared, he said, listen, if these would hold their peace, the very rocks would cry out. The earth has an appointment with this day. The rocks will cry out if they keep their mouths shut. But then Jesus says this, and this is what I want you to see. Listen to what Jesus says on that day in verse 41 of Luke chapter 19. He said, and when he was come near, he beheld the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, talking to Israel, even you at least in this, your day, 
the things which belong to your peace. Watch this. But now they are hid from your what? Your eyes. What do you call that when something is hidden from someone's eyes? It's blindness. That's right. Jesus declared their blindness on this day. You say, why, Jesus? You came, you came to Israel. Why would you declare their blindness? He answers the question. He says, for the days will come upon you that your enemies will cast a trench around you and surround you and keep you in on every side. And they will lay thee even with the ground and your children within you, and they shall not leave in you one stone upon another. And here's why. Because you knew not the time of your visitation. That's remarkable, isn't it? That means that Jesus was holding them accountable to Daniel's prophecy. They should have known. Guys, if there was a prophet that said, Jesus is going to come back, 1,082 days after the third president of the United States is sworn in, wouldn't you pay attention at least with one eye? I mean, wouldn't you at least, even if you thought, well, no one knows, you know, that's kind of a kooky prophecy, wouldn't you at least pay attention to it? And Daniel gave the very day in which the Messiah would come, and they knew not the time of their visitation. And Jesus said, because of that, blindness. Now these things are hidden from your eyes. We begin to understand why Daniel separated. I'm sorry, Gabriel did it. Daniel just wrote it. You know, 69 sevens from one seven. Because after 69 of those 70 years or 70 sevens, Israel was blinded. And right now, there's this period of Gentile salvation. God is reaching the world. And Israel, the 70 weeks of their future, is paused. God didn't throw the stopwatch in the dumpster. He just pushed pause. But it's going to start again. And how many years are left on that stopwatch? There's seven years left, right? If it's a week of years, there's one week of years left. There's seven years left. Anybody have any idea what that seven years is, what we call it? Tribulation. That's it, the tribulation. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble in the Bible because it's the time when God is going to again deal with Israel. When you read Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, it talks about how the spirit of grace and supplication is going to be poured out on them again. The fire of God is going to go back into Israel again. And God is going to pick up his work with them. Their eyes are going to be opened. God is miraculously going to restore their sight for those final seven years. When? The answer, Romans eleven twenty five, The verse that we started on, on this point. He says that blindness is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. When God is done with the church age and the rapture comes, we're out, he's going to again begin that final seven years where he works with Israel again and the blindness is going to be healed, and they're going to be able to see. And so God has a future plan for Israel. He's going to deal with them again. And then it says in verse 26 that all Israel will be saved. 
Even as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and he shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As according or concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are loved for the Father's sakes. Now, let's talk just for a moment about this phrase that he uses in verse 26, where he says that all Israel will be saved. Some people say that because of this verse, it means that everyone who is a Jew by DNA or by blood is going to be saved. That everyone uh, without exclusion, whether they believe or not, because they are part of Israel, therefore they will just be saved according to this verse. That's not what this means. Salvation is always by grace through faith. Otherwise, God is not fair. He can't just save a people group because of their nationality. You say, okay, well then, what does this verse mean when it says that all Israel will be saved? It's talking about the fullness of their vision and sight and God's opening of their eyes. Look back at verse 15 for a minute. You see in verse 15 of the same chapter, Romans 11, it says that if the casting away of the Jews be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Now, can we infer from that verse... Verse 15, that when the Jews went blind, the rest of the world is automatically saved. No, of course not. We know that anyone can be saved, right? And that God is moving amongst the Gentiles. And, and there's a wonderful work. But that doesn't mean that everyone in the world is going to be reconciled to God just because the Jews were cut off. It means that the door is open. And that's what it means back in verse 26 when it says that all Israel will be saved. Their eyes will be opened and the Spirit will be poured out upon them and, and they'll be open to it in the same way that Gentiles have been for the last 2,000 years. But not every Jew is going to be saved just because they are Jewish. They still must believe. They still must receive Christ Jesus as Lord. They still must confess that they're sinners and repent of their sins. That's universal. There's no one that can be saved any other way. Otherwise, Jesus didn't have to die. He could have just made an exception. We all could have been born Jews if God wanted us all saved, right? The fifth point that he makes in this whole thing before he wraps it into his glorious conclusion is in verse 29. He says, For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Now, in the immediate context, what that verse is saying is that God is not done with the Jews because God doesn't quit something that he started. And if God called Abraham and made a promise to him and his descendants forever, then for God to cut the Jews off and to leave them cut off would mean that he breaks that promise that he made to Abraham and to his people throughout all the ages. He says, listen, when God makes a calling, when God gives a gifting or a privilege, he carries it through to the end. Does that mean we're done? <laughs> Out of time. <laughs> and we understand that that's actually comforting to me the bible says in philippians chapter 1 verse 6 that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of jesus christ when i first gave my life to the lord um i like you uh was caught up in a in a whole host of sins Things that as a 19-year-old I had um, gotten into and gotten mixed up with and things that had a hold on my life. And, uh, and I immediately knew when I was born again the things in my life that weren't right. 
And some of the things in my life were, were very easy. They just fell off. You know, it was like the scales off the eyes. They just, just went away. But there were other things that were a huge struggle for me. I didn't get immediate victory uh, over things. And, uh, and I would have this conflict because I would, on one hand, love God. I loved his word. I, I was learning and growing, and I had hope and his presence. But on the other hand, I couldn't escape some of the, the chains to some of the sins that were still present in my life. And there was this shame and this guilt and this fear that, that, that I was cut off, that God was going to be done with me, that I wasn't worthy, that I wasn't strong enough to be saved because I couldn't break free from some of these sins. I didn't like them anymore. I hated them. I learned later that that hatred was part of the reason why God was letting me fight with them. But I remember that there were times that I would sin uh, whether I'd get drunk with my friends or I would get high or, you know, just something, something wrong. And I would just feel so ashamed and, and, and I couldn't even enjoy sin anymore. And I remember going into the woods on several occasions and I would just scream out that promise to God in prayer. I would just say, Lord, you said that, that you that began a good work, that you'll be faithful to complete it. Please help me. I want to get through this. I want to have victory over these sins. I don't want to live a double life. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I, and I don't want to fall away. I don't want to go back to the world. Lord, save me from these things. And I would plead that promise before God. You began a good work. Please finish the work that you started. And little by little, God gives victory. Now... Sin is like an onion, isn't it? After you peel off a layer, what do you find underneath it? Another layer, you know? It's like, yes, Victor! Self-will, stubbornness, pride. This thing goes deep, doesn't it? And I find myself again praying to the Lord, Lord, you said, you who began a good work in me, that you'll be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And then in my years, I would go through seasons where I was just cold. I had no hunger for the word of God, no desire, no appetite. And I would backslide in a sense, not necessarily into sin, but just out of his presence. I'd become estranged, as it were, from God. Church became mechanical. Prayer became routine. And by his grace, he wouldn't allow me to stay in those places. But he would put a a leanness in my soul, a dryness in my heart. And he would draw me back to him again. And the truth of the matter is that he that began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. And that's an amazing comfort to know that God will be faithful to carry out what he began. But at the same time that that's an amazing comfort, it is also something to be greatly feared. Because if the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, then that means that God will continue to work through my life even if my heart grows cold and I turn my back on him. What I have seen in my years now as a Christian and and, and especially as a pastor is I have seen people that lead effective and fruitful ministries that lead many to Christ that have made a big difference in this world for Jesus' name, that have completely made a huge shipwreck of their lives and made a huge mess in their sin. A pastor of a church of several thousand that started from the ground up, that's impacted a region and led many to Christ and borne much 
solid, real fruit. And yet it's exposed that that pastor has had multiple affairs and has stolen money. And, and you look at that and you say, how in the world is that possible? What, what gives? I mean, this guy was leading people to Christ at the same time that he was sleeping around on his wife. How is that possible? How could God use that life? The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. And the reason that makes me fear is because what it tells me is that just because God is using me doesn't mean that he necessarily approves of my behavior or that the way that I'm living is necessarily right. Huh. God, you're, you're still using me, and I'm getting away with this sin. Therefore, you must approve of this behavior and that it's okay. Not so. The Bible says, be sure and know that your sin will find you out. And you might be able to get away with sin for a season, for a while, but eventually it will be exposed. It's just the nature of sin. It's like a cancer, right? Eventually, it's going to get you. And God doesn't judge every little act of disobedience and, and stumbling and misfiring. He allows us to make our choices. We have free will. And that free will is an amazing responsibility. And the fact that God is patient with us or that God will continue to use us even though we're not in a right place with him is a scary prospect. Because it bids us to keep our hearts right before him, doesn't it? And to fear him. So it's a comfort that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. But it's also a conviction. It's a warning to you and I that we must keep our hearts right before him. We must walk with him. He brings it to his conclusion. He says, For as you in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God has concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Now, the conclusion, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be paid back unto him again for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. I, I actually put a title on this uh, message this morning, on this passage of Scripture. I called it Understanding His Incomprehensible Ways. <laughs> That's a huge oxymoron, isn't it? <laughs> Understanding the ununderstandable, basically, is what it is. And what Paul is seeking to do here is saying, listen, when it comes to this concept of understanding that Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And then trying to reconcile that with all the things that you see and the things that you experience in your own life. And you want to try to understand how both of those things can be true. He's saying, good luck. But know this. God is, I like this sentence. I'll read you the sentence I wrote. God is calculated, intentional, mysterious, and effectual. He's calculated, intentional, mysterious, and effectual. Meaning that everything that he does, every one of his ways, make absolute sense. 
and they're absolutely perfect, and they're way beyond yours and my ability to figure out and comprehend and understand. Psalm 77, verse 19. Great verse. Write it down. It says this. It says, Thy way is in the sea, and thy path in the great waters, and your footsteps are not known. Think about it. A way, a pathway in the sea. That's, could you follow that? How do you follow a path in the ocean? Water is always moving, right? It's, there's currents and, and tides and, and, you know, how, how can you follow that path? And the, it's saying that God's ways are in the sea. You're never going to be able to figure it out. His footsteps aren't known. You're never going to be able to comprehend it fully. So what does that mean for you and I? It means two things. It means don't ever trade what you do know for what you don't know. What don't you know? Why, God, did you do this this way? Why, God, is my wife sick? Why, God, did the Holocaust happen? Why, God, do you allow poverty? Why, God? And there, we don't know. I don't know. I can't answer those questions. I, don't, I, I couldn't tell you. What do I know? I know that God is good. I know that he works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. I know that his love is unconditional and his ways are true and just. I know that when I see him, I'll understand all things perfectly. I know those things. So I'm not going to trade what I do know for what I don't know. Well, because I don't know why this happened, therefore I'm not going to believe that God is good. That's foolish. Don't trade what you, don't, what you do know for what you don't know. Hold on to what you know. And the other thing that this teaches me is it teaches me that I should always have a file in my mind that's labeled, wait for more information. And when I hear something or see something that doesn't make sense or that questions God's existence or God's goodness or God's reality or truth, and I don't understand it, I put it in that file that just says, wait for more information. And sure enough, as happens often, I'll hear something or see something or learn something along the way that makes sense of something in that file. And then I just put those two things together, staple them, and then file them in their proper place. Oh, that's why. Oh, that's why. Other things will remain in that file until the day I go to glory. And I'm not going to let the things that are in that file steal from me my faith or my trust that God is good and that he's working all things together for good. Oh, the depths and the riches of our Lord. How unsearchable are his ways and his judgments past finding out. We'll never understand fully. But he's good nevertheless. And I love the closing verse of the passage. It says, For of him, through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Of him means that God thought of it. All things are his idea. Through him means God's the doer of it. It's his power that brings it to pass. And for him or to him means he gets the glory. So everything that happens is God's idea done through God's power to the result of God's glory. Now the opposite of that is of me, through me, and to me, for me. God, I've got this great idea of how things should go and how we should accomplish X, Y, and Z. 
I'm just going to go with this handmaiden idea. Have a baby with her instead of my wife. And this is how things are going to, this is such a good idea. But now I've thought of it. It's my idea. So now I've got to produce the effort to make it happen through me. I'll just help you out on this, God. You can just watch, supervise, bless this plan of mine. <laughs> well, Sarah's idea. Abraham went with it, though. You know? <laughs> if it works, that was good, wasn't it? To me, my glory. Nebuchadnezzar walked on the palace wall of Babylon. And he said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built with the power of my hand for the excellence of my glory. Of him, through him, to him. It says in that very moment, the nails of his fingers grew, his body became hairy, he turned into a wild beast for seven years. <laughs> Beware, guys, to exalt ourselves above what's fitting. Of him, through him, to him are all things. So Paul takes us on this wild ride in these three chapters, giving sense to what's going on with Israel and also helping us to understand that God has a calculated, meaningful way of how he goes about all things and that we're called to trust him and not try to figure everything out. Amen? Amen.